Hey, Daniel. Hey, Kate. Welcome back to Hot and Bothered. Welcome back, everyone, to Hot and Bothered. Yeah, wow, it's been a long time. We felt so compelled to talk about this new IPCC Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report about 1.5 degrees of warming that we just couldn't, couldn't stay away. That's right, yeah. I mean, it's just climate change has like barreled its way back into the news and the news coverage is characteristically horrible, bad, <laughs> horrible, <laughs> terrible. Uh, so I think we, you know, we want to set the record straight. Like, what, what is the actual situation of, you know, climate change and, and the politics of climate change uh, in this country and in, and in the world? And before we do that, just a quick reminder of who we are and what this is. Uh, we are Hot and Bothered, a podcast about climate politics for the 99%. I am Kate Aronoff, a journalist based in Brooklyn. I write mainly for The Intercept and a number of other outlets. And uh, I am Daniel Aldana-Cohen. I'm a sociologist at the University of Pennsylvania. But for this year, I'm uh, living in the suburbs at the Institute for Advanced Study in uh, Princeton, New Jersey, um, basically by myself in the woods with my laptop. Uh, so it's nice to get some company. Ah, uh, yes, the wild of Princeton. That's right, yeah. <laughs> um, so let, let's start by just, you know, a, a, f- a few words here, right? Like, what is going on with this new IPCC report? What's it about? Uh, and then we'll get into, I think, a broader kind of panorama of what is the basic situation of climate politics, uh, you know, in this country and, and around the world. And we'll talk a bit about a bit about Brazil. And then we'll circle back uh, to some of the kind of wonkier aspects of this IPCC report. But mate, Kate, Kate, why don't you start us off? Like, what 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 about the reporting of this report kind of hits you as being wrong? Why do you think the coverage is so bad? Uh, and maybe compare that to what you see as the report's main main takeaway. Yeah, so to start off, I think it's just important to have a basic grounding in what the IPCC actually is, which I think is confuse a lot of people who don't regularly cover climate politics. So IPCC, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, uh, this is a UN-affiliated body, which is a clearinghouse for climate coverage. So this is a sort of world's reference point for what the scientific consensus is. And so what that means is that they take the existing literature up to a certain date, they collect it, and they analyze it. And then they write up an analysis, and they let people comment on it. And so what that means is that the IPCC isn't just kind of coming up with science on its own. It's collecting it and making its own take on, on kind of what that means. This is not new information, right? This is science which has been on the record, which we've known about if you've been following this for some time. And the big headline, which I've seen most often, has been, we have 12 years until we all die, uh, which is just not true. <laughs> and and, and it's, it's, it's kind of astounding that people who regularly cover climate politics or claim to be paying attention to this could um, get that takeaway from, from this report, which does not say that. That's right. Yeah. So I think, I mean, let's, let's get into sort of the, some of the, the core issues, right? The, the report um, was, was given a goal that, that the modeling community had actually been not working on for some time. The goal was to think about what is the difference between 1.5 degrees uh, warming you know, on average, all across the, the world in, in Celsius, right, which is about a little over two and a half degrees Fahrenheit. What's the difference between 1.5 degrees Celsius warming and two degrees Celsius warming, which has previously been considered the kind of safe limit? The idea was, okay, up to 2C warming, two degrees Celsius warming, mean global average temperature. Up to 2C warming, we're more or less okay. Um, after that, it gets really dangerous. Um, but anything between, you know, zero and 2C was kind of all sort of almost lumped together. And 
I think one of the big things this report did highlight, and this was the mandate that it got basically after the Paris Agreement, was to spell out the differences between 1.5 C warming and 2 C warming. And it, it turns out that the differences are stark. It's not that 2 C turns out to be civilization ending, but if we could get to keep it at 1.5 C, it would be significantly better. And just to even back up from there a little bit, there when the Paris Climate Agreement sort of set this goal officially of, of two degrees C, uh, there had been a long sort of running demand from Global South nations that that was an unacceptable level. Um, but there was no climate modeling um, to sort of model what the Paris Agreement ended up coming to, which was to limit war- warming to, quote, well below two degrees. And so there was this whole new body of work that had to be created to actually figure out what a 1.5 degree world could look like. How, how would we get there? That's right. Now, so one thing this report finds, and this is like 0% news, right, is that to to stabilize warming at 1.5C would be extremely difficult. And in fact, uh, a couple of years ago, there was a controversy in the climate modeling community. A bunch of the climate modelers wanted to stop running climate models at 1.5C because they just thought it was wasting the time of supercomputers on such an unlikely scenario. Now, that changed after Paris, and we can debate whether or not that's good or bad. But I do think there's, I, th- I mean, I think, Kate, I think both of us are, are really uncomfortable with the extremely doomist framing of this report. And I think part of that comes from the fact that the report is evaluating the difficulty of reaching 1.5, which is something that everybody always knew about. And there is an argument, and you know, we could, we could debate whether it's a good or bad argument, but there's been an argument for some years that we should really focus on t- 2C because that is the most realizable yet still very ambitious target. Um, and I, I mean, I almost feel as if in this report... Although 2C is worse than one and a half and those impacts are unequally distributed, there is a sense from the way this report comes out that it's like it's, it's gotten so much harder to maintain kind of safety in the world. But that's more of a, a function of the news framing, I think, than of where the science has been at. I, mean, I don't know. Would you share that? Totally. Yeah. I mean, a, a scientist we've probably talked about a bit on shows in the past uh, is Glenn Peters, who has a sort of... Uh, talk where he he says that two degrees, even two degrees, uh, is only possible sort of in climate models. And so, you know, we can we can sort of debate about that. But again, this isn't the fact that 1.5 degrees and getting there would be enormously, enormously difficult is just not new information. Look, it's a it's a shitty situation that we're in. I mean, there is just like absolutely no doubt about it. It is a very shitty situation. And I think that ringing the alarm is is totally warranted. But you know, one of the, the points of the IPCC report is though that no matter what level of warming you get to, the amount that of suffering that there's going to be will depend to a huge extent on whether we make investments in things like social equality, education, public services, smarter infrastructure, and, and so on. In other words, the 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 different possible range in terms of how how kind of vulnerable we are to this warming is not just the difference between you know 1.5, 1.6, 1.7 degrees of warming, but is really a function of how much investment do we make, uh, or you know, the countries make, the governments make, and so on. How much investments are made in like the quality of human life, uh, and I think that on that front, and in terms of you know how quickly we decarbonize, it is very strong in the report, but it's very little in the news coverage is really about political choices that we're going to be making uh, in this country and in other countries in the next like two to five years. I mean, really, the action here is not on what are the climate outcomes going to be. We knew they were bad. 
Uh, but I think that the action of the report is actually to really draw our attention to the political choices that we have to make right now. And those political choices are really pretty open and they, they make a huge difference. Exactly. Yeah. And the authors clearly state, right, that even getting to 1.5 is physically possible. So there's no sort of physical or chemical limitations on our, our ability to get to 1.5. The entire problem is political. It's how our economy is structured, how incentives and in our political system work. That is the entire fight. It's not about kind of what the what the outcomes will be. And it's 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 wild to watch people focus on on the sort of, you know, to treat this as if it's new science when in fact it's just a real condemnation of our politics and, and the way our economy is structured. Okay, so here here's what I propose, Kate. Uh, we've got a ton of stuff that we want to talk about. I think um I think that down the line, we really want to get into some of the, the guts of actually the specific ways that the IPCC, or rather the science that the IPCC is reporting, there's specific ways that that science models out future pathways. And that modeling procedure tends to, it, the way that it works is it sort of obscures how much of the leeway is social and political. That these models kind of make it seem as if we are sort of scientifically uh, destined to reach certain levels of warming. And I think what we're really trying to get at is that the ultimate thing that these models are saying, they say it kind of quietly, is that the whole thing boils down to social, economic, political choices about how we organize our economy. So I guess my proposal is that we can later in the, in the show explain exactly what we mean by that. But before that, why not sort of give a panorama of what the kind of key you know, economic and political issues are uh, right now. Yeah, agreed. Where should we start? It's a small question. <laughs> Where should we start? Exactly. And I guess even before we get there, I mean, I guess just the, the, the point, though, is that, right, like, I think when we criticize this report for being catastrophist, it's not because we're saying, A, that the science is wrong, and we're not, B, saying, though well, the science is right, but they should really frame it in some other way because it would be, like, better marketing, right? I think what we're saying is that the actual science in the report, if you look at it in the, in the right way, is not telling the, catastrophi the catastrophic story that is being reported in the media, right? That the journalism is mischaracterizing the science. Is that, is that fair? That's totally fair. And it's also not necessarily the job of the IPCC to market this, right? So they, you know, they collect the science, but they're not social psychologists. You know, there are social scientists there, but they're not the people who are figuring out, you know, what is the Dumas framing? What is going to inspire the most action? That part is really up to journalists who I think have failed in large part on this. Yeah. Yeah, and and, and let's let, let's get into that again also also later because I've also been, it, it's it's disturbing because you see, there's been more and more and more climate reporting in general, which is great actually in the mainstream media, but the way they respond to these big dumps of climate modeling seems to be always this kind of kind of shitty thing. Um, okay, so I, I I kind of just like when I try to, ref to to frame to people what climate politics is about, just to make a very brief intervention, which is, I think we've gotten used to from the mainstream environmental movement for many years. Uh, we've gotten used to thinking about climate change as fundamentally about uh, scarcity and about, you know, what are the things that we're going to have to give up to avoid global warming. Now, there are some things that will have to be given up, and, you know, we all know what they are, like SUVs and, like, gratuitous, you know, endless flights that we don't need and all this other stuff. But fundamentally, what climate politics is about right now is how are we going to spend an enormous amount of money 
rebuilding the the world that we live in, right? So the the World Economic Forum, which is basically you know the Davos folks, the kind of big capitalist think tank, they're talking about five trillion a year spent on climate friendly infrastructure. That that's what we need. Um, the Global Commission on the Economy and the Climate, uh, you know, which is kind of co-run by the ex-president of Mexico and, and Sir Nicholas Stern, a British mainstream economist, they're talking about the need for $1 trillion invested every year just on renewable uh, energy. So I think you know, it's just important to remember that what the, the big fight is coming is not over what exactly do we give up, how many light bulbs should I change, in what order, but is really like, how are we going to spend this huge amount of money to rebuild the world? Is it going to be democratic? Is it going to be about eco-apartheid? Are we going to go fast enough? But a huge amount of investment is, is coming. So it's really not a question about the things we give up. It's really a question about what are we going to do? Exactly. And so, you know, I've, I've said this before, but public consciousness in the United States, especially about climate change, really sort of coincided with the zenith of the neoliberal era and so as we were sort of coming up with the way you know the, the way we talk about this the way we've been sort of trained to talk about this the default is always to individual action because that is sort of the prescription that neoliberalism gives us is you know to focus on the individual and so you know this is not sort of an issue uh, which feels almost comical at this point to say this but it's not right an issue of you know changing light bulbs or um even your diet, it's that there are these sort of massive macro level choices that happen in the economy, which structure the way you consume, which structure um, kind of how cities are, are, are built, um, all of this sort of stuff, which, which yeah, is this, is this question of investment and where, are, where is capital going in the global economy? All right, so let's, let's get into this now and let's talk about this in terms of U.S. politics for a little bit. That's where we both are right now. Kate, you're just doing a, a ton of amazing reporting on climate policy, struggles all over the country, movements, science. Where, you know, where do you see right now in the U.S. the, the most interesting and important climate fights happening? And, and what do they look like? Yeah, so the West Coast really seems to be kind of where things are at. So California has been probably the biggest leader. They met their uh, emissions goals four years early. And basically, the, the, the sort of big takeaway from that is that you can have a, a real sort of climate technocracy that works very well. And so the big leaders in driving down emissions have been these huge kind of demand side policies, creating huge markets for renewables. So sort of aggressive renewable portfolio standards, uh, fuel efficiency standards, which are being sort of battled out with the federal government and the courts. There's a cap-and-trade system, which is arguably non-functional, um, which has not really contributed to that progress that California has made. And so, yeah, so they're, they're sort of doing that kind of incredible work, which doesn't, I haven't seen at least translated into the national conversation beyond sort of the grandest strokes of California's doing good things. The thing that did make news sort of recently was this bill, SB 100, brought by Senate candidate Kevin DeLeon, who's, the, who's a state senator there, to basically get to uh, zero carbon in California's energy system by 2050, which is an incredible goal and, and sort of the most ambitious climate policy anywhere in the U.S. And it, it's, it'll be really fascinating to watch how they, how they end up implementing that. The other place uh, which has a fight going on right now is Washington State, where they are gearing up to pass a pretty incredible bill on carbon pricing which would uh, build in sort of massive levels of investment to build up 
low carbon infrastructure, massive investment in communities which have been most impacted by by the impacts of climate change and, and will continue to be in the future. And this comes after a defeated measure in 2016, um, which was a, a revenue neutral carbon tax, which would have done basically none of that, which would have made none of those investments and the sort of things they need. And so whereas in that fight, sort of all of the environmental justice groups were opposed to the measure, they said this is having this would be worse than having nothing, actually. And so have, you know, got those groups have gone all in on on getting this this initiative passed. So let's yeah, let, let's. Let's deconstruct that a little bit because I think that this is definitely where where the things are happening. I, so the one thing I guess I would say about California, you know, maybe a friendly amendment to your story is um, there was a law that was passed, uh, you know, a handful of years ago uh, that that said that one third about one third of the revenues from cap and trade and the revenues are not very high because the cap and trade is poorly constructed. But whatever, one third of the revenues from cap and trade have to be directly invested. Uh, in communities of color, low-income communities, communities that have disproportionately borne the brunt of pollution. So they have a kind of somewhat, somewhat complex scheme for determining what those communities are uh, exactly. And I think about a, a close to a billion dollars has been invested actually already. And there's, you know, the one great story I've seen about this is by Audrey Lim uh, in The Nation. And from, from what I can tell from the story, from looking at other stuff that has not traveled as widely uh, in terms of media outlets, there have been real improvements uh, in terms of people's access to like you know lower carbon vehicles or electric vehicles, insulation of their homes, solar panels on their rooftops, uh, also you know a focus on local jobs uh, for the people who live in these communities, cleaning and and also you know cleaning up pollution. So th- I, th- I think it's it's good to emphasize right this piece of investment, the way that you spend the money can really reinforce like a virtuous circle between social equality, almost a, a kind of logic of reparations for years and years of disinvestment and of toxic harm, um, a virtuous circle between that social piece and then the decarbonization plus resiliency piece. And that I think that people just got to know that there is a way of investing money in climate action that does enormous amounts of social good at the very same time as it's doing a ton of work to decarbonize the economy. I think that's right. Yeah. And, and it is sort of a, a complicated issue because there have been those investments. Also, I mean, the Folks I have talked to from the environmental justice community in California hate the cap and trade program. Right. Or, you know, see it as this totally inefficient system, which really sort of gives polluters license to continue polluting in their backyards, really ignores some of the environmental justice impacts. But, I mean, talking talking also to folks who, you know, have been paying attention to this stuff, what's good about this system is sort of, as you mentioned, it's a revenue generation mechanism. This is kind of how Reggie functions in the Northeast, which is that it's not very good at bringing down emissions, but it is good at raising money, which I think it's, you know, something to think about in terms of looking at carbon taxes, especially in at the state level where budgets are so constrained. You know, it reminds us California has done a ton to bring down emissions, but it could do a lot more to crack down on some of the local fossil fuel industry that, that is there, though some of the ways in which it is spending money are really great. And I think let's, let's connect back to Washington State, right? Because it seems like what, what's going on in Washington is they want to use a, a carbon tax to shift you know, consumer behavior, to penalize the fossil fuel industry, to extract money from the fossil fuel industry. But then they also want to invest you know, a significant amount of that, also like upwards of a third, if not more, specifically in those disadvantaged communities, right? And we already know from California that that kind of investment actually works. Yeah, that's right. And and you can even see it kind of in, in who's 
uh, aligning in opposition to it. So last time around, the the oil industry, this is in, in 2016 with this other revenue neutral carbon tax. And we're talking Washington State, right? In Washington State, yeah. The re- oil industry was relatively quiet about that. Um, and so, you know, there was some opposition to it. This time around, there's a sort of a full court press to defeat this measure, which, you know, I, I think is a kind of good gauge of how good a policy will be at bringing down emissions is how mad is the oil industry about it. That's right. And then on the flip side, right, the, you know, in 2016, Washington State had this proposal for a revenue neutral carbon tax. So the, you know, there would be... I-732. Yeah. So that, you know, the carbon would be taxed, essentially prices go up at the, you know, at the pump and and for utilities, but then every resident of the state would get a check for the same amount. So that's broadly progressive because basically rich people are paying more for gas, more for utilities, uh, but then everybody's getting the same amount in the, in the mail. But even so, the largely those kind of social justice, climate justice, racial justice groups in 2016 opposed that measure, um, right? Because they didn't think it actually went far enough in terms of the investments. Plus, they weren't they weren't consulted. Uh, whereas now, this new measure, a carbon tax, uh, and all the revenue actually is then invested in clean energy resiliency and in, and with a special focus on these disadvantaged communities. It's. I looked at the website. I mean, it is insane how many groups, like the entire spectrum, basically of civil society, supporting this. There are like Mexican restaurants that are supporting this, Greek restaurants, whatever. Numerous restaurants. I mean, it just seems that there is a vast number of organizations that are lining up behind this like investment-focused uh, tax and spend, you know, measure basically, right? Yeah, and this is what's interesting about kind of translating. I mean, I think we should talk, you know, in more detail later about the national implications of this, but. You know, if states are sort of seen as this kind of laboratories where we test out policies which could get passed feasibly at the national level, it's really interesting to look at Washington, right? Because they tried to pass this carbon tax measure, which was revenue neutral, the sort of, you know, free market dream of just incentivizing polluters to pollute less, um, giving everyone a sort of rebate and not adding to government coffers. And then in order to get it passed, they're sort of building in all of this investment, building in all of these environmental justice demands to make it more palatable. Because people, you know, hear the word tax, not something a lot of people have positive associations with, <laughs> don't really have associations carbon. Um, so it's, it's a really easy thing to sort of attack. Um, and so what they're doing in Washington State is really building in all these incentives for um, communities around the state who, and saying, you know, you'll get something out of this. There will be tangible improvements in people's lives in, you know, transportation and all of these things. And, you know, I think there there's something to that when, when we think about potentially, you know, needing to have national climate legislation at some point in the not too distant future, which is that what people like is not the carbon tax. What people like is getting something and they like getting investment in their communities a lot more than they like getting a check in the mail, at least if we're looking at, at what's happening in Washington state. So we'll see. I guess Washington State is good. There's going to be a referendum. But it's certainly the case that the public polling evidence suggests, and David Roberts at Vox has written about this quite a bit, the public polling evidence shows that people are just in love with renewable energy. They're desperate for it. They want more of it. They love investment. They love technology. They think it's awesome. Um, and so you can get people actually really excited about investments in this new clean energy economy. And if you then sell that as a story of investment, but yeah, there's going to be a, a tax or a fee on carbon to pay for it, they're totally down for it. If you start talking about revenue neutral tax schemes, I mean, like, it sounds like a terrible PowerPoint, you know, in a, in a poorly lit room, which I'm, I'm currently in a, well, it's well lit, but the fluorescent lighting is kind of horrible. <laughs> and so much of the carbon tax conversation, right? I mean, this is like a hobby horse that I, I think I have 
to an unhealthy degree, but it's just a conversation between economists who like look at this as being such an efficient policy, as being the kind of like gold standard of climate policy. And it is, you know, on a on a on a very basic level common sense, but I think the consensus among economists about how popular this is really gets confused for being a consensus among the majority of the voting public about how popular it is. Um, and it, if Washington State shows anything, and you know, we'll see if it passes, but it's that, uh, you know, bring more people into the room than just, just the economists. Yeah. Now, to be 100% clear, right, like I am all in for a price on carbon and a high price on carbon. Same. And you are too. What what is coming more from the conservative end and the multiple, the very technocratic end is car, revenue neutral tax and dividend. And often, the idea is that we'll get Republicans and the oil industry on board by trading all the regulations that we have, and scrapping those. And the only mechanism for transforming the entire fucking economy and with it the entire built environment, the only mechanism is a price on carbon, one price. That has been the pitch of these economists. Yeah, a low price. I mean, you're talking about the the Climate Leadership Council's plan for this, which says, you know, gut any regulation we have to directly go after the fossil fuel industry um, and just leave it all up to this price, which I think starts at like $40 a ton USD, which is $10 below, I think, what the Stern-Stieglitz report um, from the World Bank said is like the minimum level to provoke any sort of behavioral change among polluting firms. And even the IPCC report, to circle back to that, I mean, most of these models build in a carbon price that is in the hundreds of dollars. I mean, that's the sort of median as it ranges from like $100 to like $1,000 is what's built into the assessment models. And so, you know, to think that a $40 per ton price on carbon would, would do really anything uh, it's just crazy and also assumes, I mean, this is really getting into the weeds, but it also assumes that energy markets are efficient and that there aren't sort of other massive incentives like fossil fuel sub- subsidies, like long-term contracts that mean, you know, that just because one fuel is marginally more expensive, it will go off the market. Okay, let's, let, let's actually just get into this for one second because this is really important. I mean, first of all, the climate activists who are putting their bodies on the line and, and other kinds of activists like water protectors who are putting their bodies on their line to physically inter, intercede, to get in between machines of fossil fuel extraction and the ground, that is like literally blocking the extraction of fossil fuels. It is keeping those fossil fuels in the ground. And that kind of action is putting huge political pressure on governments to take regulatory measures, you know, banning fracking, uh, blocking pipelines, and so on. That is the stuff that right now actually is having the biggest effect or a huge effect in terms of, you know, restricting the fossil fuel industry's capacity to, like, cook this planet. And, and a carbon price is not going to do that. And I, and I think you, you write something earlier, Kate, which is so important, which is that the whole thing that we've learned in all these years of climate policy is that you have to do it in a way that improves people's everyday lives right in the minute. If your model is that you make stuff really expensive and then you wait for the, you know, the private sector to eventually come around and invent something else, all you're doing is just making life suck. Um, rather than having a far more complicated, using a number of different policy tools to really build the low carbon and then no carbon world we need to live in, which is great. And just one of those many tools is the, is the price on carbon. Um, uh, something I've been thinking about is, you know, I, is this great thing that David Roberts actually said. You know, I, I heard him in, in talking in Philadelphia the other day. Again, this reporter at Vox. He, he was like, look, if you actually just physically wanted to get to that 1.5C, you, you could do it. It is physically totally possible. Everybody knows how to do it. And he's like, think about 
think about the you know the war economy in World War Two. Like the way that they built all the tanks and planes that went you know to defeat the Nazis was not by putting a tax on factories that did not build ta- you know tanks and planes. They just told them what to build. Right, right. And, and you can do that. You know, I met the head of the International Energy Agency, another one of these climate modeling and energy modeling groups, uh, a couple of years ago, and and I asked him, you know, if you could name one thing that could move us from one two C to one point five C, and he was like, well, if you just bankrupt a huge number of Chinese coal companies, you're going to get most of the way there. And 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 again, it's like. A, a price on carbon, you know, alone, yes, it puts pressure on these companies. But you can also just go in and say, you, 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 it's done. It's over. Boom. Pay them like 15 cents on the dollar, whatever. Shut it down. Move on. And like economic reality is just not the same thing as physical or even legal or political reality. Uh, we can't fetishize and make it seem as if economic reality is equivalent to the laws of physics. Right, exactly. I mean, and, and, and I think you know, ownership is also a huge piece of this. I mean, by the end of World War II, something like a quarter of all manufacturing in the United States was nationalist. And so, yeah, exactly as you said, the government wasn't sort of incentivizing companies to make war plans or whatever. If they didn't do it, they nationalized them. Um, there's a great exchange. I think it's between somebody in like the somebody in the White House talking to a, a kind of business leader and he says, well, what, you know, who will run these companies? Who, if you, if you nationalize them, who is going to, you know, oversee the operations and everything? And, and the official from the White House just says, ah, like, we'll get some general to run it, you know. Uh, <laughs> Which is not <laughs> so what we're proposing think, for climate, low-carbon economy. But that's the point, no, right? Not, not sort of a, a military Keynesianism, but no. I think there are, you know, lessons to be drawn. Yeah, you can find people to run things. I think this is so important because I think we do, no matter what ends up happening, it is, it is, we have to just enlarge the political imagination of, of not just ordinary, but I mean of ourselves, right? As a climate movement, history shows us that historically the best environmental, most successful environmental policies have been quote-unquote command and control, actually. Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act cleaned up large parts of the United States uh, without market mechanisms, you know, built a huge amount of new stuff during World War II uh, without using market mechanisms. So, you know, there's a, there's a large portfolio. Um, let's just talk for a minute, you know, the federal policy landscape, right? Coming into 2020, starting with 2018, I'm seeing, and Kate, you've been covering this a lot more closely, I'm seeing increasing presence of the Green New Deal all across the board in the campaign materials of kind of progressive Democrats and their primary campaigns. Now, I don't think the Democratic Party is in and of itself the solution to all of our problems. But to me, it is extremely exciting to think that the political energy uh, on the progressive end of the spectrum is really thinking big in terms of climate change, jobs, justice, infrastructure, all as kind of one package. I don't know. Is that, uh, am I making this up? Am I seeing what you're seeing? No, that's definitely happening. But there are two things that are happening kind of simultaneously. So on the one hand, there is all of this progressive energy, people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Rashida Tlaib, um, uh, several other candidates who are running on platforms that are hugely ambitious when it comes to the climate. So many of them talking about a Green New Deal, about transitioning away from fossil fuels as soon as 2030, which is what we need to do if the IPCC report tells us anything. So there is a sort of wave of insurgent candidates who are very, very good on climate, many of whom are getting elected. Uh, at the same time, Democratic leadership is actively uh, trying to tamp down expectations that they will go after climate after the midterms, even if they win back the House, especially if they win back the House, um, and focus on these sort of like incremental 
measures. I mean, I'm forgetting the exact quotes, but there was a piece in The Hill uh, just yesterday uh, quoting all of these sort of Democratic Party higher ups saying that. And so I think there is sort of a real um, battle to be had there between um, uh, between the sort of folks who are coming in, um, who have more energy around this, and uh, the Democrats, who many of whom are, are really bought into this kind of incrementalist approach and just not talking about climate change, which is what they've been doing since 2009, effectively. Yeah, this is, it's dispiriting to hear. However, I, here, here's why I'm actually optimistic about this. It, the, the, in, the United States political system is a disaster, but the weird like opportunity that's sort of been built into it now, with the, especially with new modes of communication and, and a lot of other things going on right now, is that the primary seasons uh, do tend to favor kind of uh, a kind of sort of, sort of populist, exciting uh, politics that can really get people excited, you know, day after day, week after week, month after month. In the case of presidential campaigns, um, when you look at the the primary from the last election on the on the Democratic side, you had a very good climate infrastructure jobs plan from Martin O'Malley, who everyone has probably forgotten if they ever knew about him. But that's fine. You are the biggest Martin O'Malley fan of anyone I know. I'm like a, I kind of have like a hobby of sort of being soft on weirdo Democrats uh, that the time has forgotten. Um, but look, I mean. Martin O'Malley, <laughs> you know, say what you will. Martin, if say you're out you there, and I won't even Daniel say would love to have you look, as I, look, a guest. The guy was the governor of Maryland. It's possible that I have literally never set foot in Maryland. But his climate plan was 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 uh, was amazing. It was really good. Second best climate good plan. Good climate was... plan. Good packs. <laughs> you know, yeah. Did you see that picture? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know the ice fishing stuff. It was amazing. Um, uh, uh, <laughs> uh, Bernie had a great plan. It wasn't actually as good as O'Malley's, but it was good. It was really good. And and you know, and Hillary had the worst one. Um, but but so I think you look at 2020 and you look at how the environmental movement, the kind of movement toward the Green New Deal uh, is, is really spreading. I think there is very good reason to believe that most of the even remotely progressive Democratic presidential candidates uh, are going to have a, a plan that has climate jobs, infrastructure, sort of justice all rolled up together. And I think that honestly, I think that person, whoever it ends up being, is going to be is going to be Trump. And just to let me play out this sort of scenario for one more minute. You then go from having 10 years ago where neither of the two world's biggest economies and biggest polluters, which are China and the U.S., 10 years ago, neither of them was, was strong on climate. Now you're talking about both of them leading on climate investment. That activates the EU, which has been kind of stagnating, but where there's a lot of political interest in this from a number of the member countries, Germany and France in particular. Um, that then puts pressure on countries like Brazil, where you know we're talking about containing harm, at least initially, but also India, Indonesia, countries that have a huge emissions potential, but also a huge potential to take uh, a very low carbon pathway. So I think, I, I don't think we can emphasize enough that in the U.S. alone, the the global benefit of, of kind of winning some of these fights around combining equity and investment and climate in the run up to 2020, that has huge global uh, ramifications, all for the good. Um, if we can win those those local fights, and I I don't know I think that I think it looks pretty good. Um, it's going to take a ton of work, but I don't I can't I can't think of a more favorable political climate that's ever been in the U.S. for aggressive pro equality, you know, fast low carbon action. I don't know. Am I crazy? <laughs> no, I think that's right. It's, and and certainly you know that that's a more correct and also more optimistic reading than I think I've seen anywhere in in uh, reporting on the IPCC report. Um, the one note of caution yeah. I will add is that I do think there will be a fight, right? Oh, like yeah. I, I think we are reaching a point where denialism as we've known it 
uh, the sort of junk science approach of calling climate change a hoax or whatever, that's sort of on the way out. Even clearly someone uh, in Trump's White House like advised him not to say that. And then he sort of garbled this answer to it on 60 Minutes where he said, you know, something like, I don't think it's a hoax, but, you know, something inane. Mm. Um, but anyway, I think that's sort of waning. And we will, I am fairly confident in the next four years, see Republicans sort of coming out and backing their own version of climate policy, which I think many Democrats may well get swept up in. And so I think I am hopeful that what will win that fight will be this sort of broad egalitarian program for a Green New Deal um, that is is sort of rising to the surface now. Um, but I do think that that will be a fight that happens. Um, and, and it won't just be within the Democratic Party. That's right. It is going to be an absolutely epic fight. And there's no question, right, the fossil fuel industry fights hardest when it is, you know, being pushed towards extinction. And that that moment is is coming. And to note, they are, you know, actively sponsoring carbon tax proposals. Exxon announced it'll put some sort of paltry one million dollar investment over two years into this, which is like chump change for for Exxon. But but they are kind of looking to move into this space and kind of lay the groundwork for when there is a clear consensus among the American public that we need climate legislation and they are trying to stake a claim to that debate. And that is something that I think is, is worth really paying close attention to. That's a great point. And when you think about the political psychology of mainstream U.S. political reporting, the profound, profound desire in these narratives and in these reporters to find a centrist consensus kind of post-ideological option as they understand it you know, is is enormous. And there's going to be a huge, huge push, right, to kind of settle on, oh, we're, we're you know, meet Exxon halfway or something like that. And that is kind of scary, because that's just the wrong, wrong way to go. It's the wrong way to go. And I think, I mean, something that's so exciting about this new wave of insurgent candidates is that they're willing to name enemies. So in the kind of willingness of people like Bernie Sanders, uh, not that he's an insurgent candidate, but uh, of people like him, of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez to really name who is causing the problem, which is really useful when it comes to something like Wall Street and the financial industry. It's also extremely useful when it comes to the climate fight, um, which has been so abstract for so long and caught up in this talk of behavioral change and sacrifice um, when we know who by and large is causing the problem, and that's the fossil fuel industry. And so I think having uh, politicians and movements which can put the climate fight in those sort of populist terms is will be really important. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's great. Yeah, to, you know, the, there, are, there are people in the climate justice movement who've come out of the environmental justice movement, which is really an extension of the civil rights movement, who've been fighting on this for so long. And to finally be at a point where, you know, just the most basic things that they're fighting for are being translated into like ambitious, fearless national policy agendas by left sort of leftist politicians who are themselves, you know, inspired by and in close contact with those movements. I mean, it, 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 it's a huge victory. And I think you're totally right to point to that fearlessness and the willingness to name names and that specificity as, as a sign that things are turning. Hey, everyone. This is your producer, Colin Kinnebra. Before we go on, a quick reminder that you're listening to a special edition of Hot and Bothered, a podcast on climate politics for the 99%, presented by Descent Magazine. You can find links to all the articles mentioned in this show and lots more at DescentMagazine.org. We're also on Twitter. You can find Kate at Kate Aronoff, Daniel at Alda Tweets, that's A-L-D-A Tweets, and the rest of the crew at DescentMag. You can also tag us with hashtag HotBotheredClimate. 
Now, back to Kate and Daniel. So let's let's keep our pep here. Let's talk for a minute about about technology. Um, you know, here's one of my pet peeves. There's for so Nothing long puts pep in my step, like talking about technology. <laughs> for so long, the line has always been this: somebody will say, you know, Al Gore or whatever you name it, to say something like this. With already existing technologies, we can solve this problem by blank year by doing blank things. Blah blah blah. Now, I do think, unfortunately, that is no longer true. We have to count on continued technological innovation. Um, I, I, Look, I would, I would rather say with presently existing technology, that wasn't true then, actually, because what it, the technology that it's going to take to make a you know, re- renewables-only grid work is, you know, is, is coming. I mean, it's around the corner, but it's really not been completed yet. I don't, I don't know. I, I sort of feel that there has been this just ridiculous opposition on the left for growing. Now, the idea that there is, like, on the one hand, is political realism, a.k.a. seeing only the bad side of the climate news, and, and then on the other hand is just like stupid technological optimism. So basically the concept is like either you're an idiot who likes TED Talks or you're a genius who hates technology. Um, and I, I think that's just wrong. I think technology is you know broadly in many cases, not all cases, but in many cases kind of socially neutral. And there are progressive and horribly authoritarian you know, versions of this. And I, I don't know. I think we on the left have to learn to feel good about the technological progress that is making it possible to ultimately decarbonize and to kind of be willing to just step out of our comfort zone to just think about some of the technological options that are appearing and try to think creatively about them and what would it mean to deploy them in a, in a progressive way. So I don't know if you want to be the, you know, I could talk about lab meat, but I, I want to hear you, Kate, because I know you've got some stuff you're thinking about along these lines. Totally, yeah. And I, I think it's really frustrating to see, you know, friends and comrades of mine on the left um, you know, just respond very negatively negatively to words like innovation, which is not a right-wing buzzword, but gets treated as one often. Um, and to just totally reject out of hand the fact that, you know, there are really important things happening um, in technology. And it's unfortunate, I think, that so much of that conversation is happening uh, in the private sector and that there's not a sort of more robust role or credit given to um, the role of public sector research in creating a lot of these innovations. Um, you know, programs like ARPA-E, even some of the things coming out of DARPA, which, you know, the military isn't the thing we necessarily want to hold up. But but innovation, like you said, and, and technology itself is not, is not inherently right-wing. And I think it's dangerously ceding some ground to capital to say to say that it is and to say that there can't be a sort of progressive or egalitarian vision of uh of innovation and and for technological development now let me just give one one example i've been thinking about and i think you've been thinking about too kate which is carbon capture and storage now i personally thought this was the worst fucking idea for a really long time um carbon capture and storage is essentially a technology whereby you capture the carbon from the emissions of some process and it could be a natural gas power plant it could be a coal power plant it could be any number of things. And then you, you push that carbon underground and you store it. Now, okay, there are multiple different you know, uh, subtleties that I'm not going to get into right now. But here's the, here's the thing. What, I, what I've learned is that actually there are certain industrial processes, for example, making steel, that to electrify was going to be incredibly difficult and take a very long time. Yet we need steel to make wind turbines. And I don't think we're going to turn off the electricity in the world. I don't think that is the solution to our problems. Um, and so I'm starting to think, you know what, actually... There are, there's a version of CCS, which is just a license to frack and to use natural gas plants for 80 years, and I'm totally opposed to that. But, but 
if you were going to be running steel plants in the next 20 to 30 years, yeah, I want to capture that garbage. I want to capture that garbage, that carbon, and store it <laughs> underground. And I, I find myself often, it, one of the things that climate change has done actually to my left-wing politics in general is it's just caused me to throw out a lot of, in retrospect, kind of prejudicial one-dimensional views and to say, no, you know what? This is a problem. A problem needs to be solved. And yeah, there is a space for carbon and capture and storage and steel. And let's see. Let's see what the debate is. Having a debate about that on the left is not the thing that is going to kill billions of people. Doing nothing is what's going to kill billions of people. Uh, and I think we have to be open to thinking in a flexible and intelligent and really detail-oriented way But what are the various different things that can be done. I mean, is that, I don't know. That's kind of where I'm at right now. I think that's right. I mean, carbon capture and storage in particular is really interesting because, I mean, for a while, what this was called was enhanced oil recovery, and they've kind of rebranded since then. Um, and you're right, traditionally has been used um, by fossil fuel companies to extract more oil. They inject CO2 into the ground to, you know, access um, fuel, which is more difficult to get at. Um, but it falls under this much broader uh, umbrella, which is negative emissions, which is a huge part of how the IPCC and any any climate modeling envisions getting to 1.5, even to two degrees, and you know points beyond that as well. But right, so it's not you know I think there is a legitimate concern that I mean about CCS particularly that the fossil fuel industry could treat it as just an excuse to continue to extract more. Um, when the Trump administration came to bond the climate talks, the UN climate talks in Germany uh, in, in 2017, their only sort of public presence was sort of extolling the virtues of CCS and clean coal, quote unquote, um, as a way to continue to extend the life of the fossil fuel industry. So that is a real narrative that exists and that the fossil fuel industry is pushing out. But I don't think the answer to that, as you said, is to just walk away from the table entirely. I think there, you know, we have to really come to the table and say this is this is sort of crucial technology and it should not be used in, in no way should it be used to just extend the life of these polluting industries and basically as PR for them to sort of, you know, continue doing what they're doing, which is totally unacceptable to the health of the planet. And then, you know, there are a number of other technologies which are, are not CCS in particular, there's things like carbon dioxide removal, which is taking carbon out of the air, not from sort of industrial processes. Um, so all of this, all of this, you know, requires sort of huge research and development in order to make it scalable. Right now, it's, you know, prohibitively expensive. Any of this is, is really difficult to sort of bring to scale. But I think in any vision of us getting to 1.5 or points there up, through uh, two degrees and beyond, um, we actually need to be having a real conversation about the, these technologies. And, and I think, you know, removing carbon dioxide from the air and from industrial processes is something which should firmly be on the table and that um, we should, you know, have a, a real conversation about how to make that democratic, how to uh, take away the sort of screwed up profit incentives um, that are built into that um, and, and, you know, actually just have that fight. You know, what? I, I think this is the moment when I finally come to terms with the metaphor, come to the table. <laughs> I, I always thought it was just this weird right-wing metaphor, and maybe, I don't know. But the thing is this, when we use the word we, and I think uh, the left, can, anybody can be sloppy with the environmental we, right? This is a theme. Now, or the left we, as if it's or one the left thing. We, all these different we's, right? But look, nobody in the US progressive community is ever gonna be in charge in China or Brazil or, or you know, really anywhere else, right? We're, we're lucky enough to be in charge of our own lives and or ultimately to have major you know, political influence. Um, and so, like, on the question of nuclear, for instance, like, do I think nuclear energy is what's going to decarbonize the U.S. economy? No. 
but I also recognize that what China does with nuclear energy is like largely independent of my of my wish. And so, to a significant extent, yes, we, we, no matter how big a we we imagine, it is always just you know one small group coming to the table. And so I think if we just say we're all against CCS, we don't even have any influence on how it's used anywhere. And one of the major payoffs of, of understanding and thinking about technology is that we in our movements and potentially eventually, I don't know who knows, our parties or our governments, I mean, who knows where we end up. But we want to actually be much more intelligent in the way that we use or don't use or don't use some of these technologies. And in order to even get there, we have to understand what we're talking about. I, I guess just very quickly, you know, the second upshot, and we don't have time to get into this today, but maybe one day, we need to democratize science and innovation. You know, I have zero percent enthusiasm for a world in which the left is basically like, yes, MIT says we support. <laughs> or, MIT sa or MIT offers a menu and then we pick. No. No, no, no. The point is that like MIT is deconstructed and the educational spaces and the practical spaces where people learn how to do really cool advanced stuff, that has to be everywhere and everybody has to have access to that. And I think once we come to terms with the importance of science and technology and that that's exciting, then we figure out how to democratize it. Exactly. Yeah. All right. So, you know, we can't talk forever, but we've got a few more minutes here. Um, I had wanted to, to really get into some details in the Brazilian election, I'm, but we're not going to have, have time for that. I'll just say, you know, I'm tracking this very closely. My research is in Sao Paulo. I am extremely scared, honestly, for the livelihood of friends of mine in, in Sao Paulo who are in the housing movement, uh, who are women, who are black, uh, who are queer. I mean, this is an extremely scary time for them. You know, there are things that we're going to be able to do to support these people, and we have to figure out what, what that is. If, if Bolsonaro, the, the neo-fascist candidate, wins, as he most likely will, there are things that we can do in the international community, serious things that we can do to prevent the worst from happening in the Amazon, and in many ways to prepare a much more interesting and innovative and far-sighted politics of really reforesting that part of the world in a way that, that fundamentally follows the leadership of, of folks on the ground there. So I just, I just want to put that marker down there. Um, this is a horrifying situation that's going on in Brazil. It is also very scary for the climate, but it's not a situation that leaves us impotent. Uh, it requires certain specific kinds of interventions, and I think that's something that a bunch of us will be getting into you know, once, once this election is, is behind us. Um, let's maybe come back to a couple things about the IPCC and kind of end on some reasons I think that the two of us are, are a little bit hopeful. Kate, maybe give me a, a bit more of a sense of when you look at the IPCC and how the kind of models are done and the ways that they tend to think about the economy, what are some reasons for you to look at that report and say, hey, there's actually some real space for, for hope, some real scope for action here? Yeah, I think the reason is that they say this is possible, right? Like the, the models that they are collecting together um, as sort of, you know, uh, riddled with neoclassical assumptions about the economy, uh, with the assumption, you know, that we'll continue to have economic growth, all these things that sort of skew uh, the results in, an, in, an, in a number of sort of hard directions. Um, even, even they say that this is possible, right? Um, and so I think that's what's helpful for me. I think this gives us sort of a, a blueprint, in a sense, to understand what we need. I mean, they lay out very clearly that we need to keep fossil fuels in, in the ground, that we need to scale up renewable energy to a massive degree, that we need to make massive investments in technology. Uh, and now, you know, it's up to uh, not us specifically speaking as, as you and I, Daniel, um, but, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, up to our politicians, up to movements um, to make that case that we, we, can, we can actually do this. Yeah. Let me just say, go deep wonk, fast, uh, you know, and, and, and folks who are interested in this, you know, 
you, you can, I would just say, get, get on Carbon Brief and look up shared socioeconomic pathways. Okay, what shared socioeconomic pathways are is it, they're essentially the way that the IPCC is totally changing intellectually, the way that it thinks about the future is that it is articulating different pathways in terms of emissions and in terms of extreme weather impacts based on political choices we make about the kind of world that we live in. So the, for, the, for this report, the IPCC you know, sort of relied on five different potential socioeconomic uh, pathways, or they're called SSPs, and, and looked at the different ways that those different pathways, what, what, what they do in terms of mitigation, reducing emissions, what they do in terms of impacts. So just to, to sort of schematize a couple of these, SSP1 they describe as a sustainable development world. It's characterized by a lot of technological improvement, a lot of education, a lot of investment in public services, a sort of feminist public policy that results, you know, by the way, in, in lower birth rates, and a transition to less resource-intensive uh, lifestyles, which is essentially like walking around more, uh, more yoga, fewer end tables, that kind of thing. Um, this this model uh, quantified is the the model that is the easiest way of getting to 1.5 degrees with no negative emissions. So. Now, we're not going to get 100% this world, SSP1, which is a kind of social democratic world. Uh, it's not modeling socialism, but it's modeling just something more social democratic. Um, that, that, that model, that set of choices performs really well in terms of emissions. Um, if you compare that to SSP3, they call regionally divided world. It's kind of the nightmare world that Trump and Bolsonaro want to want to build. Very little interregional cooperation, uh, you know, low indices of human development, you know, low education and, and, and work opportunities for women around the world. You know, that world does does very poorly in terms of bringing down emissions. But there's also a huge difference in the impact of, of extreme weather. So when you model two degrees Celsius, what are the impacts on people? And you compare SSP1 and SSP3, and, and SSP1, they estimated, you know, somewhere like 30 to 85 million people will be really hard hit by extreme weather uh, in a world of 2C warming. In SSP3, the world Trump wants to build, up to like 1.1 billion people are getting hammered by extreme weather. Uh, and this is in both cases, you know, the timeline of, of a few decades. And, and so what's the point is that what the report finds when it does all the sophisticated modeling, bringing in social science, is that the pathway that puts equity at the top of the agenda is the pathway that is the most consistent with very rapid reductions in greenhouse gas emissions and is a pathway that makes extreme warming kind of livable, survivable, you know, for the vast, 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 vast majority of us. And then we can still do more to help, to help people. So um, I, to me, it is actually really good news that the IPCC has said, in our quantitative modeling, we need to put political choices over social and economic uh, structures at the very forefront and, and how we think about the future of climate change. Now, the whole report is structured around this. It's not in the summary for policymakers. These uh, scenario, the scenario exercise, prioritizing this kind of social and economic pathways, these political choices, will be the basis for the next major IPCC report. None of the mainstream media coverage even even picked this up, but um, it, it's all over the report actually. So I, to, I know to me this is great news. I think the IPCC is basically screaming at us: do not focus on the outcomes only. Focus on the social causes of this problem and the huge variety of choices that we have, some of those choices are really, really, really good. Right. I don't know. It's weird. It's weird to think about these quantitative projections filling me with hope, but, but they do. And I don't know. I think they're, they, they tell a really compelling story. It sort of sounds like the story that they're telling is that carbon-intensive bourgeois society stands at a crossroads. 
either transition into low carbon social democracy or regress into fossil fueled neoliberal Trump and Bolsonaro barbarism. That's that's what I get from that. But, I, you know, I think I think you're exactly right. There's sort of two tiers to the doomsday scenario. One of them is that the earth is going to end. We're all going to die within 12 years and we'll just live on a sort of husk of a planet where there are roving bands of people sort of um, fighting for survival. So that's that's the one kind of doomsday Mad Max scenario. And then the other is a sort of doomsday scenario of decarbonization, which I think is, you know, a little more pernicious in that sense, where there's this narrative that we have to sacrifice so much in the here and now, and that everyone's quality of life will get worse, uh, which also isn't true, right? Some people, you know, will um, sacrifice sort of transatlantic flights um, we might all, you know, have to give up meat or something. Uh, you know, I think that's a, <laughs> a debate we can have. But there are many pathways to getting um, to a livable planet, which make many, many people's lives much better. Um, and I think that that is too often not talked about. And it sounds like is is a is kind of a takeaway from from these reports. And to be 100% clear, in this SSP1 world, one of the single most salient features of this projection is that hundreds of millions of people are pulled out of poverty. Uh, and that is not a problem for the climate. That is the solution for the climate in, in countless ways um, that I, one, could, one could elaborate uh, in detail. But I read a lot of climate social science, for, be- for better or worse. And this, what the modeling that they're doing is, is utterly consistent with, with, the, with the social science that, that's being put out there. So... Yeah, I mean, I think your reading <laughs> of the crisis of bourgeois uh, carbon-intensive society is, is correct. It's not what these august scientists are saying, but your reading is, I think, the most compelling interpretation. So I don't know. I wake up every morning thinking we can solve this problem. I, you know, the IPCC report gave me a lot of information that I didn't have, taught me a lot that I didn't know, did not fundamentally change that conviction that, that, that pulls me out of bed and that is based, as far as I can tell, on the best knowledge that, that we have. Right. So if you're, you've gotten to the end of this podcast and you're listening to us, we can both hope that you'll you'll be in a place of optimism, that you'll um, feel feel good about the world. Um, but just know that, you know, both of us spend uh, the vast majority of our days thinking about climate change and feel relatively good. Yeah. I mean, we're also often truly profoundly depressed about it. But I don't know. I mean, I think I think even whether like you're optimistic, whatever you're like, psychological disposition is right i guess our point is like don't just read really good writers ability to describe to you shitty things that could happen in 2040 right like focus on the amazing things that are being done right now that are totally transforming our ability to massively decarbonize and to adapt to what's coming i I just there's a there are potentially like scary abrupt climate events but they're really exciting kind of abrupt social and political and economic events that people are making happen right now. I just wish we could focus much more on that. And, and even the IPC science really is fundamentally about, about that too. Right. In any world in which we bring down, in which we cap emissions uh, consistent with a 1.5 degree world or with a two degree world, people's lives will get better. Yeah. You know, I don't think we're going to see some sort of um, total eco-apartheid uh, decarbonization scenario simply because it probably won't work. Um, we know that the way that we get there is by really radically changing the way our economy functions for the better, um, for the for the benefit of most people who live in that economy. And so I think that's that's the big thing that people should take away. And another 
huge takeaway of this report is that it gets much worse, that there's not a point at which we can just stop doing anything and sort of resign ourselves to living in a climate changed world, that there is always the capacity for things to get so, so much worse um, than they are now. And sort of the difference between 1.5 degrees and 2 degrees is enormous. Um, and to say that, you know, we're going to sail past 1.5, um, why even bother, uh, is just totally inconsistent with, with what that report actually says. Yeah. I mean, every degree, every fraction of a degree of warming that we avoid, we make the world better. And the world is full of people working so hard and with really bright ideas to, you know, keep those fractions of degrees of warming from happening. Um, I don't know. I'm excited to be in this fight. It's changing me. It's changing the people I know. And I think we're coming out stronger, better, more interesting people. The world is getting potentially stronger, better, more interesting. We can, we can make that happen, right? Stronger, better, more interesting. 2020. <laughs> <laughs> Let wow. that be everyone's wow. slogan. Uh, so on that note, um, I guess we should wrap up, huh? Yeah. This has been great. Hot and Bothered, back from the dead to bring you uh, this special uh, rant on the IPCC report. Maybe Zombie we'll be back for another. Optimism. Can't yeah. kill it. Yeah, could be. This will be a, a, a you know once every six month podcast. I don't need, know if there's even sort of a, a word for that, but biannual, right? <laughs> Semiannual. <laughs> Surprising. <laughs> we're, we're full of surprises. <laughs> yeah. As the world changes, you know, climate creates uncertainty. We don't know what the future will bring, um, but we learn to live and embrace um, the surprises that, that come our way like this podcast beautiful perfect note to end on all right talk to you soon kate all right talk to you soon thanks everyone for listening this has been a special edition of hot and bothered from descent magazine if you like what you've heard head to descentmagazine.org for much more reading and listening including videos from Descent's recent conference on the future of the left in the Americas. You might especially enjoy the discussion on resisting extractivism and climate change, where Kate and Daniel joined three other top-notch panelists to touch on many of the same themes you heard them discuss today. I hope you'll also take the opportunity to subscribe to Descent, which will not only get you a copy of our current issue, with a special section on housing, as well as everything we have in store for the next year, but will also help us put out more shows like this one. That's it for the plug. Special thanks to Isabel Cristo for her help editing today's show. Our theme music is an instrumental version of Carigar by the band Mercurias, recorded and mixed in Sao Paulo, Brazil, by Victor Rice of Total Running Time. Till next time, thanks for listening to Hot and Bothered. <laughs>